have a Bible this morning, find the book of Philippians. Philippians, and we're going to be in chapter number two. We're going to get there in uh, just a few moments. Today, today is a message series and a sermon that I have been wrestling with for a long time. And uh, it's been a, a specific date on the calendar for me that we were, go- we were looking forward to. And it's significant for me. Uh, today is really an overflow of what God has been doing in my life and what God has been saying to me and some things that I am wrestling with very, you know, on a very personal level. That's a little bit different than typically the way that we handle sermons. Most of the time, sermons around here are, we prayerfully look to God and say, God, what would you have for this church family this week or this month? Uh, and so that's typically what it is. This is more like an overflow of what God has been doing in me personally. It's kind of, it's very personal. Uh, and uh, I say all that to just say some of this is going to be raw. Some of this is going to be questions that don't have answers. Some of this is not going to be very well put together and it's going to feel a little bit underprepared and that's okay. Are you with me? Okay, here we go. Uh, this, the sermon series Next couple weeks, we're just using the word glory, glory. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to dive right into this. I'll set up this series with this. I feel a deep down tension in my life. And I'm not even sure tension is the right word, but it's an uneasiness inside of me. It's a struggle inside of me. And the Bible is my authority, It's where I look for truth and instruction. I believe the Bible is the very word of God and I want my life to line up with the truth that's in it, the truth of the scripture. But here's where I struggle and here's the tension for me. I struggle with the reality that the life that I live, which is this American Christian life, is very, very different than the lives of the people that I read about in the Bible. I wrestle with this. This is uneasy for me. When I open the pages of the scripture, specifically in the New Testament, the, 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 basically the part of the Bible, the life of Jesus and uh, the beginning of the church on, when I open and read that, I read of incredible miracles, but I also read about intense persecution. History tells us that 11 out of the 12 disciples of Jesus were killed for their faith in Christ, 11 out of the 12. Uh, Early Christians faced imprisonment, they faced beatings, they faced death. We have Acts chapter seven that tells the entire story of a man named Stephen, who uh, people in the city of Jerusalem gathered around him and chucked massive rocks at his head and killed him. That is Acts chapter seven. For no other reason than he was declaring Jesus is Lord. And I read about the life of the Apostle Paul, who we, we have 13 of the letters that he wrote, and we have much of his life laid out for us. And I read about the times he spent in prison, the times he was beaten within an inch of his life. We read in history how his life ended at the, end, at, at the hands of the Roman Empire, executed more than likely his head cut off. His crime was that he was a follower of Jesus. And then I look back to my life, Central Minnesota, 2023, in a land that is filled with wealth, a land that is filled with religious freedom, a land that is safe and secure. I I live with the freedom to worship, the freedom to 
gather together like this and to sing and to own a Bible and to do all of those things. And if I'm honest with myself, I do not need God to provide for me. I have everything I need. I I don't need to pray to God for my daily bread. I can just go to my kitchen. Do you understand what I'm saying? I have money in bank accounts and life is safe and secure for me and for my family. I live blessed and I live free. And I know all of that sounds amazing. My family is safe. What a great thing. I have everything I need. What what an amazing thing. I live in the beautiful freedom of America. What a powerful and incredible place to live. But if I'm honest with myself, I just can't help but feel deep down that something is not quite right that something is a bit shallow, that something is a bit lacking, it's hard for me not to feel that the more that I have, the less I seem to turn to God and the more self-centered I become. Can I just be real with you? And the Bible warns us about wealth over and over again. It never points to wealth as being wrong. It never points to wealth as being sinful, but we are warned. Jesus even says things like, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And I read things like that, and we read things like that, and we automatically think that's not me. That's for someone else, but deep down I feel the weight of some of this stuff. It's, of course, not a bad thing to have freedom. What an amazing thing that we have in America, religious freedom. What an incredible thing. But understand, when we have freedom of religion, complacency becomes an option. Do you understand what I'm saying? Places around the world where they are not free where they're not free to gather together and they're not free to own a Bible and they're not free to declare their, their love for Jesus, like it's either yes or it's no for them. You don't have this in between. You're either all in or you're not in at all. Our freedom allows us to be complacent. It becomes an option for us. I'm just speaking from the tension that I feel. Over the past year, I've found myself reading books that tell the stories of people in history who did great things, uh, great things for God. I have a couple of them here. I've literally read a dozen of very specific kinds of books. I'll show you a couple very quickly. Okay, here's a book that's called The Heavenly Man. Okay, it's kind of a funny title. Uh, this, bo- this, this book is a story of a Chinese Christian leader. In the middle of it, there's a picture, and I didn't put it on the screen for you, but there's a picture of four of four Chinese men standing next to each other. And it just says this, four Chinese gospel warriors in 2002. And then it lists off their names and it says, together they have spent 47 years in prison for their faith in Jesus Christ. And you read the story like this, it's horrendous. You, you will read this story and you will think there's no way that is still happening today. How can this be And I read uh, a book called High Adventure in Tibet. It's of a a missionary um, in the early 1900s who left his family here and missionaries in the early 1900s, very different than missionaries now because you're basically saying goodbye to your family forever. 
And he travels to Tibet in the mountain regions, which is kind of near Nepal and way up on the west side uh, of China. And, and he spent his life traveling from little village of people to little village of people, 10, 15,000 feet above sea level, over and over again, some of the things that he experienced, some of the pain that he went through, some of the stuff that he faced is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And uh, very recently, in fact, I'm not quite done with it, I've been reading this book that's called Sacred Ambitions. Sacred Ambitions, it's a very recent book. It's just a year or two old is what this one is. And it's about a couple from Minnesota Uh, who spent the last 30 years of their life as missionaries in the Muslim world, uh, right in the middle of some of the most dangerous places that we could ever even imagine, stuff that we don't even know about, and life and all this stuff, okay? In 2019, this couple moved from one very difficult place to probably, you could argue, the most difficult place in that region. Um, I won't say the country... uh, out loud because we're online right now and I don't want to be stupid and somehow put them in danger. Uh, But this book is kind of a journal of his. Uh, It has days by days and you kind of read through it. It's a journal of the first about year of of their life in that country. Let me just read, let me just read one part to you. Uh, And I put it on the screen so you can just see the weight of what he says. He wrote this, he, he, he writes, I spent yesterday writing letters for Jennifer, that's his wife, my sons, my family, and my colleagues in case I missed the significant events of their life. God knows and I'm content to let him decide. What we do know is that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth everything. We are his currency. He will spend us as he sees fit. If my life can be used to glorify Jesus, so be it. If my death can be used to glorify Jesus, so be it. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I do not know what he will choose for me, but this I know, to be with Jesus is far better. This is a man who has counted the cost of what God has called him to do in the life that God has called him to live. It's dangerous. This is a Minnesota guy. Dangerous. At any moment, he knows it could be all over for him, and he knows that. He's writing letters to loved ones in case he misses the most significant events of their lives. He's writing letters basically saying, in case I'm not alive for your wedding, to his children. And this is the line that just sort of rocked me. He writes, we are his currency. He will spend us as he sees fit. If my life can be used to glorify Jesus, so be it. If my death can be used to glorify Jesus, so be it. And then he quotes something that the Apostle Paul wrote, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And listen to me. Listen, I'm in no way saying that to be a true follower of Jesus, you have to go to prison or you have to die for Jesus like, or even live in poverty. That is, that is silly. That's not realistic. That's not what this is about. But for me, listen, it, there's just this deep down tension inside. It's not guilt. 
I don't feel guilty for the blessings that I have, but I do feel challenged. In fact, Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, to whom much is given, much is required. And I feel like for me, much has been given, but I do not feel like much is being required. When I compare my life to those around the world in history and those in the scripture. So so here's the next few weeks. I'm going to just struggle up here to navigate through questions that I don't have answers to. Does that sound like fun? I hope it does for you because it doesn't for me. Uh, I may be wrong in my thinking in some of this. I may say something that isn't even right. But what I want to do is walk through the tension and not pretend like everything is always roses and celebrating in my life, okay? And so I'd like us to begin by praying together. Please stand with me all over this place. God, we, we take a deep breath. We invite you into this moment right here, right now. We are hungry for you. We want you to be the center of this, every part and every piece. And I pray that as we wrestle with some of this stuff, God, that you would show us, that you would teach us, that you would speak to us, that you would help us take a step in the right direction, whatever that means and whatever that looks like. Help me, God, don't let this be about me. Don't let this be about my thoughts and my stuff, God. Let this truly be about you. So we give this to you, God, in your name, we pray. Amen, amen. All right, give somebody a high five and have a seat. Here we go. This this series of messages, and I don't even know how long it's going to be. It could be two, it could be 140 weeks, I'm not sure. More more than likely three or four. I'll just say that, okay. But uh, this series of messages is going to be really based on a section of scripture that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, when he was in prison. And uh, he wrote a handful of letters from prison. One of my favorite, in fact, one of my favorite books in the entire Bible is this book called Philippians. As he is in a prison cell in what we think is Rome, uh, very, very end of his life, he's not that far away from being executed in history. We, we don't have the exact details of, of his execution in the Bible. We just have some church history things that kind of point to this being really close to the end. And Paul knows the end is coming. He's been in prison a number of times, and he writes this letter to a group of Christians that are like 500 miles from him. They had helped him out. They had actually sent somebody who brought some money for him and some supplies to him while he's in prison, uh, as prison was very different for these people in this time than it is for us. They were kind of on their own from people on the outside to provide for them. And so this, this church that Paul had been in contact with, had been a part of starting years later, sends this man, and this man travels 500 miles and shows up to Paul with incredible supplies. And Paul sits down in his jail cell with paper and pen or whatever that looked like for them back then, okay? And he begins to pen out this letter. It's a letter of thanksgiving to them. He starts by saying, you guys are incredible, unbelievable what you have done. Thank you so much. You are serving God and loving God, and I, I pray for you every day. You know, that's kind of where he starts with them. And then he goes into this section, which is chapter number two out of about five. The first chapter is all like, you are amazing. I'm so grateful. 
Chapter two, he goes into this 18 verse section where he just begins to, in a way, write out of the overflow of his heart. It's a little bit in and out. It's a little bit strange. He'll be going one direction and all of a sudden it's like he's somewhere else. Uh, But in this, I have just found in these 18 verses for me that some of the answers to some of my questions uh, have begun to come. And if you're wondering like, what is the question that I'm asking? The question I'm asking is, what does it really truly look like for me to be a follower of Christ in a place filled with wealth and freedom? That's the question that I'm, that I'm asking, okay? And so we're gonna look to this, Philippians chapter two, starting in verse number one. I'm gonna read all 18 verses at one moment right here, and then we're just gonna make a couple observations from this and really set us up for the next couple weeks is what this is, okay? So follow along with me if you'd like on the screen or if you have a Bible, Philippians chapter two, verse number one. He writes, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. The the Greek phrase there is actually like he emptied himself. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on that day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Quickly, just allow me to pull two things from these 18 verses for today. We're going to expound on much of this over the next few weeks. There is so much 
so many parts and pieces of this. So today we're going to kind of take a little bit of a step back and more of a general thought. Okay, two things from these 18 verses that are helping me on my journey of what does it look like to live as a follower of Jesus Christ in the midst of wealth and freedom. Okay, number one, write this down if you're taking notes. Here's what I'm learning. I'm learning that tension is good and should be part of our relationship with God. Tension is good, okay? What am I talking about here? What, what's going on, okay? Verse number 12 from what we just read together. It's kind of in the middle of the whole section, but he writes, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. A line in here, in the middle, at the, like the end of verse number 12, he writes, continue to work out your salvation in fear, with fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation. Well, what does that mean? And for some of us in this place, we read stuff like that, and we immediately kind of think, continue to work hard so that we can be saved. Continue to work hard towards salvation. But that's not, that's not what this is. There's zero part of this that is that. Because in other places, Paul would say the exact opposite of that. Uh, he would say things like, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not by works. There's nothing you can do. That's Ephesians chapter two. Okay, this is absolutely not continue to work and work and work and in doing all that working, you will eventually work out your salvation and you'll become saved by your working. That's not what this is. When Paul says continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's very simply saying as Christians, we should constantly wrestle with what it looks like to actually live this out. Uh, in, in our context, in our situation, in where we're at and what we're facing and what we have, we should be wrestling with what it looks like to live as a follower of Christ. Now, uh, a very well-known expert on the Apostle Paul and his writings, a man, his name is N.T. Wright. Okay? He's from England and he writes books and books on the Apostle Paul. Uh, he just simply explains this line uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like, he explains it like this. God wants us to work out for ourselves what the business of being saved will mean in practice. Okay? Like, we should be wrestling with this. We should be, we should be feeling tension in the word of God as we compare it to our lives all the time in different ways. And we should be wrestling with some of these things as we try to figure out what does this actually look like? How does this actually play out in my life? We don't just follow culture and what all the other Christians around us think and say. We should be wrestling as individuals of what does this look like for me? And some people may see this as a weak Christian or an immature Christian, somebody who doesn't know exactly what they believe, doesn't the Bible just tell us how to live, but I see this very differently. I see tension as maturity. Because understand, there are very core principles in the Bible. 
that are quite clear. And in no way am I questioning any, like, that's not what this is about for me. Jesus says, know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There are truths in the Bible that we can know and we can hang on to, okay? That's not what this is about. But understand, so much of the Bible is meant to be wrestled with humbly, prayerfully wrestling through different things. See, I, I often have people as a pastor who will, come up, who will come up in a different point or send messages and they want to argue some theological thing that we believe or that I think are different things like that. And sometimes like I just want to say, you know there are thousands of doctors of theology in our world and half of them think this and half of them think this about the same passage of scripture. You understand that, right? Okay, and that, like, that's what I want to say to them. Okay, and, and for, us, for us to believe every, everything that we believe to be firm and 100% right is not a good thing. Because I'm telling you, we are wrong in our thinking in some places. We just at this point don't know where they are. Do you understand? A decade ago, we used to do church a little different than we do it now here, in different ways. And, and I look back at church 10 years ago, and I think to myself, and I look at some of the sermons that I preached, some of the things I believed, some of the things I said from the pulpit, and when, yeah, okay, and I look at that and I say, how could I be so foolish? Like, I was so wrong in different things. I'm not going to give you examples. That's not very fun. But just <laughs> like, just understand there are things a decade ago that I preached from the front that right now I would call not biblical. Why? Because over the past decade, I have wrestled with the scripture and things have changed inside of me in a lot of different ways. And 10 years from now, my hope is that I will look back at right now in my life and the way that I think, and I will have areas and places in me where I say, I can't believe I thought like that. Understand, let's not walk around and declare that we have everything figured out. That is foolish. The Bible is filled with truth and we hang on to the truth. The Bible is also filled with things that we have to contextualize and try to figure out what it looks like in our culture. Would you agree? Come on, all right, seven of us are with me, so that's pretty good. Listen, I'll give you an example. And here he goes, he's gonna talk about money again. But this is a great example with this right here. If you're a follower of Jesus in America, you should absolutely feel attention in how you handle your money. You should feel attention in that. You should be wrestling with what godly stewardship looks like in your life, in the wealth that we have in America. This is not a push for kingdom builders or to get more money for our church. That's not what this is. Individually, though, you and I, we should be feeling the tension of how to properly steward what God has given us. Jesus talks about money over and over again, and it becomes easy for us to just throw some of that out and to just say, that's not for me, that's for somebody else, that's not an issue for me. We should feel the tension of this. How much of my money should I spend on myself? The Bible wouldn't tell you that. It's to be wrestled with. How much money should I give and where should I give it? What kind of lifestyle should I be living? How much is too much? We should be wrestling with that stuff. How many things are too many things? 
At what point am I trusting in my wealth and not trusting in God? Wrestle with this stuff, please. You should be. See, most Christians just don't ask those questions. But, but if you're a follower of Jesus, there must be tension in this here. Jesus talked about us all the time, warns us of wealth and success. There are not clear answers to this, these types of questions. We are asked to wrestle with it. What does it look like for me to raise my kids to follow Jesus in this culture? What does that look like? The Bible doesn't lay out a plan. You should homeschool. You should do public school. You should do Christian school. Wrestle with it, parents. Okay? Like, there's not a right answer. People who get up and say all Christians should be homeschoolers, that's not right. People who get up and say all Christians should send their kids to public school, to be, that's not right. This is for us to, be, to wrestle with. Understand this. I'm not giving you answers here. I'm giving you questions. Just feel that. Should I force my kids to go to church? Some of you are like, absolutely. Some of us are like, if I force them, then they're not going to want to go when they're older because they were forced. It's to be wrestled with. How you handle that. At what point in our life, in the life of our kids, are sports becoming more of a God than they should? And I love sports. I'm all about sports. But at some point here, we must wrestle with these things with difficult questions about like what this looks like. We could go on and on and on. Much of being a follower of Jesus is wrestling with these kind of things. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling is what he says. I don't have answers to every question. I don't have to know everything in this moment. In fact, understand, for me, I can't tell you how freeing this is when I have fully come to grips with the fact that I don't have to have all the answers to my questions and that I can just allow God with the Holy Spirit's help just to humbly help me take one step forward as I wrestle with this. Tension is good and should always be a part of our relationship with God. Number two, and we're going to spend more time on this second one and split it up in some different ways and talk about it, but here's also what I've learned, and this scripture verse screams it, and this is not worded very well either, but that's okay. Pride, humility, and self-centeredness are central to the tension of how we need to figure out how to live as Christians in our culture. Okay, we'll move quickly through this. Paul references this in different ways over and over again in these 18 verses. Let me show you a handful of them quickly. Verse number three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, rather others above, or value others above yourself. Selfish ambition is like this, stri- this striving inside of us to move up the ladder selfishly. Uh, Okay, of course we read things like this and we say, wow, I'm glad I don't have issues with that. Okay, Uh, verse number five, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And what is the mindset of Christ Jesus? That's verse number eight. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. Okay, do nothing out of selfish ambition in humility. Value others above yourself. Have the same mindset or the same attitude is a better translation for me as Jesus who humbled himself, took on the nature of a servant. This is a theme all throughout the scripture. And we, and we don't focus on this and wrestle with this nearly enough. Pride and humility is like central to learning what it looks like to follow Jesus in every context. 
pride and humility. In fact, there is not anything in the Bible that, that God seems to detest more than pride. I'm going to show you some of this next week. God hates it. It makes him want to vomit the scriptures. It, it is horrendous to him. There's something about pride that causes God to go the other direction, and there's something about humility that causes God to draw near to that. And we're going to hit that next week. That, that deserves an entire sermon or even a sermon series because I'm telling you, as we try to figure out and we wrestle with what does it look like to be followers of Jesus in a culture of wealth and freedom, understanding pride and humility is way more central to this than we could ever even understand and begin to imagine. It's a theme all throughout Scripture. Verse number 10, the same conversation. Uh, he kind of, Paul tells us why this is such a big deal and brings more questions for me, actually. But Paul writes in verse 10 that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this is where we actually take the title for our sermon series, which is this, the word, it's just the word glory. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, what does glory here have to do with pride and humility and self-centeredness? And the question that we're asking, but just understand the one who receives the glory in your life has a whole lot to do with this conversation. The one who receives the glory, selfish ambition, it's about our glory. Vain conceit, our glory, okay? All of that, our glory. Humility, the other direction. We're pointing the glory to God. Our lives, our hearts, our purpose is for God's glory. The glory of God, the purpose, the focus, the center of every piece of this conversation is that God would be glorified in my life, in whatever context that I am living in, whether I'm in China and I'm persecuted and in prison, or whether I'm in central Minnesota living in freedom and safety, God's glory is central to all of this. What does that mean? What does that look like? And there's the tension again. The tension, it need, it's meant to be wrestled with. Uh, we get to things like, uh, I, I don't have a, this on the screen, but we even he goes into that part that says, do not grumble and complain. Do you remember that part that we read earlier? And, and it's like out of, the, out of the blue. You're reading all this beautiful stuff about the glory and all this, and he's like, don't grumble and complain. And then if, and then if you don't grumble and complain, you're going to shine like stars and all this type of stuff. He says, grumble and complain. You know what that is? It's selfishness. When you, when you whine and you complain and you grumble and you live and you argue in that way, every bit of grumbling and complaining has to do with, it's not good for me. Something's not right for me. He takes that section, I'm off on a tangent, but he takes that section, grumble and complain, from the Old Testament when the Israelites were set free from slavery and they start wandering around in the wilderness and then Pretty soon they say, we're hungry. We don't like the food we're eating. I wish we were back in Egypt. And the story says they grumbled and complained as they walked through the wilderness. Okay? Uh, a chapter later they say, we're thirsty. We don't like, this water's bitter. We want something different. I wish we were still back in Egypt, slaves. At least we had water that tasted good. And they grumbled and complained for 40 years in the wilderness. And he Paul pulls from that and says, says, again, it's about selfishness, it's about pride, it's about humility, it's about who is this about in your life. Now we get to verse number 17, getting close to the end. 
but bringing more and more tension to this conversation for me. And Paul just kind of ends this section by just saying, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. We will spend more time on that line in coming weeks. But even if, even if my life is poured out, my life is an offering to you, God. Pour it out however you choose. Whatever that means and whatever that looks like, it's not about me. It's not about my selfish desires and my ambitions in life. My life is to be poured out, God. Whatever that means, it's for you. What does it look like for us to live out our Christian faith in central Minnesota 2023 in the midst of religious freedom and safety and security and wealth? What does that look like? We wrestle with it. We pray about it again and again. We feel the tension and we don't shy away from it. We're willing to admit that we don't know it all. We don't understand it all. Willing to admit that there are things that are not right in us. Willing to admit that our understanding of the Bible and our understanding of truth is not all correct. That there are things that we are missing. And above all, with the leading of the Holy Spirit, we humbly pour out our lives as an offering for the glory of God. There's not a clear-cut answer to what that means or what that looks like, but it becomes the deep-down beating of our heart to humbly pour out our lives as an offering for the glory of God. Music team, will you please come? Back to where we started. We can learn a lot from the mindsets of Christians who are and have sacrificed much for Jesus. I could tell you about other books that I read. This is an incredible book about this missionary named Bruce Olson, another guy from Minnesota. He's now in his 70s. When he was 19, he left the frigid cold of Minneapolis all by himself and landed right at the border of Colombia and Venezuela in South America, where he got off the plane not knowing a single person but he felt God was leading him there. And he sets out learning about these indigenous, like, dangerous tribes that live in the jungle of the Amazon. And God says, I want you to go there. And he hikes through the jungle by himself multiple times, doesn't even know where he's going. And is met by spears and bow and arrows and at one point, he's badly injured and is at the point of death. Doing crazy stuff. Ends up in a village of maybe 4,000, this remote little tribe. They have no written language. Of course, they have no Bible. They have no written language. Not a person in the whole place can read. They don't even know what that means. And Jesus has never even been mentioned one time to them. They have no idea what this is. 50 years later, you can look into this online and you'll see that 80% of that village of 4,000 now claims to be followers of Jesus Christ. 80% of them. 
They have a written language and they have the scripture in their language. A man who risked incredible, crazy stuff for the glory of God, sacrificing everything he thought life was about to do something crazy. Now the tension for us is that is not supposed to be all of our stories. If that was all our stories, there's no, be nobody left here in Minnesota. And there'd be nobody to help the people you work with along in their journey. And there's no, there'd be no church for us to gather together. Okay, you understand all of this. That's not the story for all of us. But we can learn so much from people who are willing to lay their life on the line for the glory of God. We should be challenged by that stuff. We read this earlier. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth everything. We are his currency. That's the, that's the way he says it. Paul says, I'm like an offering, a drink offering poured out. We are his currency. He will spend us as he sees fit. If my life can be used to glorify Jesus, so be it. If my death can be used to glorify Jesus, so be it. To live is Christ and to die is gain. I do not know what he will choose for me, but I... But I, this I know to be with Jesus is far better. Please stand with me all over this place. God, it is for your glory. Every moment, every part, and every piece. That we know. God, what this looks like, how this plays out, what that means for us in our situations of safety and freedom and wealth, God. We are left here to humbly work, our, work through that stuff. We're, help, we're, we're, we're here to wrestle with that. And God, I pray that as we sincerely lay our lives at your feet, and we humbly say, God, we are yours. I pray that as we wrestle with that, that we would find clarity in some of this stuff that is so messy. God, don't let us be so rigid. Don't let us be so black and white about some of the things in the scripture, but let us humbly wrestle with what this looks like for us to pour out our lives for your glory, every part and every piece. We love you. We need you in your name, we pray. For many of us in this place today, this was all over the place and maybe you felt the emotion of some of what I feel, but for you, like you've never thought of any of this stuff this way, I'm just worried that as Americans in our context, we have taken a lot of the very pointed things of the Bible and found ways to say they're not about us. And I think what God is just asking of us is to, in humility, come to him, not with just what our culture has told us an American Christian looks like, but to come to him and say, what does it really mean for me to follow you, Jesus? 
in all of this. And some of us maybe aren't at that place. Others of us don't really understand what that means. And that's okay. But for some of us, I want you to wrestle with me. It's a weird thing to say. I want you to feel the tension of what it looks like in our culture in 2023 Central Minnesota to serve God. God, we open our hearts and our minds and submit to your word. We know that the scripture's filled with so many beautiful truths and we hang on to that, God. But I pray that you would help us to humble ourselves and begin to live our lives for your glory. Teach us, show us, change us, challenge us. We love you, God. We need you, God. And it's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Everybody said?